0: As you can tell, we're in a new sermon series, we finished Romans, congratulations, you made it. This morning we start a new series called Word for Word, and we are going to deep dive study in the Bible. It's going to be different, Uh, it's only going to last for a few weeks, it's going to be different, it's going to challenge your mind, Um, and so hang on tight and we're going to do this together. The Bible is the most, uh, most precious book to us. Because we would say the Bible contains the very words of life, right? But yet, fascinatingly, it seems that in the 21st century, uh, particularly in the West, we seem to read the Bible less frequently than any other time in history. Either, I I hypothesize either, uh, because we think we already know enough about it, and therefore we don't need to know anymore, or two, maybe we don't actually believe really deep down in our bones, we don't actually believe that it contains the very words of life, and therefore it's of no use to me, or maybe it is because we don't believe that we can actually understand the Bible, it's too complicated, it's too hard to read, and therefore we just don't do it at all. If you're tempted to think one of these three reasons, I want you to rethink them. Um, If you think you already know enough, i would remind you of a guy named Joshua in the Bible who wrote... Uh, at least Joshua and maybe some of one of the first five books. Um, Joshua served under Moses for years and years. He spoke to God himself. He wrote scripture. Uh, and one of the first commandments God ever gives him is do not let the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. And if Joshua needed to rehearse and remember and study and, and to continually to think about those things that even him, he himself wrote, then how much more do we Uh, If you don't believe the Bible is of value to you and that it uh, doesn't have anything you really need, you should probably honestly ask the question, if you think you're a Christian, before you can answer that. Because if Jesus has saved you, the words of this book are truly wonderful. Um, It is why Christians who have been in prison for their faith, when they can smuggle something into the jail, they often rip off a page of the Bible that they might hide it somewhere on them, that, that when the guard does not look, they could read it and soak it up because it is the very uh, ba- it is a balm to their soul and so it is of great value. Many of you don't read your Bible though and I think probably most of us in this room uh, don't read our Bibles because you feel like you can't understand it um, and it's complicated and it's hard and uh, let me tell you I get it but you can read it and can' understand it. It can be hard to understand it at times but it is not beyond your comprehension. The real problem, I think, uh, is that, and I've been guilty of this, so this is not just on you, I think the real problem when we try to read the Bible isn't comprehension, but laziness, because it takes a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of study to understand what the Bible is trying to tell us, and many of us spend that time uh, and, and, and spend time studying things, and we can quote to you every sports statistic for the past decade. Uh, we have researched whatever thing we're passionate about to death, and you can tell me all about why the COVID vaccine is great or terrible. You can tell me all why this food or that food is great or terrible. You can tell me why this politician or political party is great or terrible. And you can speak on those issues because you've taken time to read and study and think about them. But how much more should we read, think, and study the Word of God? There really, really is the words of life, God's Word to you. How much more should we write these words in our heart and meditate on them day and night? Um, many of you uh, may have heard the term the liberal arts. The liberal arts were, uh, you know, there's liberal arts colleges. So it's something we say now, but we don't really understand. Well, historically speaking, the liberal arts were those studies uh, that, were, that everyone did, right? It's grammar, logic, rhetoric, and, and then all the maths. And you, if you knew the liberal arts, it was you were able to read and write. And the reason they're called liberal is not because they voted for the Democrats. The reason they're called liberal comes from the Latin liber, which means free, liberate. And if you could read and write, you were considered to be a free person. Because if you couldn't read or write, you were then dependent upon someone else. If you needed to sign a contract or have a contract written up, someone else wrote it or someone else read it to you, and you had to trust their word that what they were telling you was the truth and that you were signing your name, something that you could not read for yourself, and so you were essentially a slave to everyone else. So to, set, to, to study the liberal arts, to study grammar and logic and rhetoric, to study, uh, to be able to read and write was to set you free, was to liberate you. Well, think about in the Pro- before the Protestant Reformation, why was it that the church was so mad at William Tyndale when he translated the Bible into the common tongue of English? Why was it that they were so mad that they burned William Tyndale at the stake? burned him alive for translating the Bible out of Latin into English because they lost their, if, if you could read it for yourself, you would lose, they would lose the control they had over you. If they could tell you, if they were the only ones who could read the Bible and they were the only arbiters of truth who could tell you this is what God says and this is what he means and you can't read it, how would you know any different? And so when they say, hey, if you want to get someone out of purgatory, you have got to pay some money to the church to get them out. How would you know the Bible didn't say that? You can't read it. So they didn't want anyone else to be able to read it. So they had the power. So they you would remain the church's slave. So we don't want that. We don't want you to be dependent upon me or some other preacher or anyone else, to uh, any radio pastor or, or friend or family member or anyone else to to explain to you the word of God, and we want you to be able to open this book and understand it for yourself. So over the next six weeks, my goal is to model for you kind of what it looks like to study your Bible. To deep dive into the scriptures. To slowly read them. That you don't have to, every time you come to the Bible, you don't have to say, okay, and read three chapters. And then not retain any of it. That you might just spend 30 minutes meditating and thinking through one verse. That's what we're going to do today. And you might say, oh, that verse is going to take me to some other places to understand it that's okay. This morning I want to encourage you as you see me mark up a digital copy of God's Word to mark up your own copy of God's Word to pull out a pen and circle and highlight and draw arrows and make little notes and write question marks or whatever. Mark in your Bible and help you understand what it is saying. My desire for you as your pastor and as your friend, is that you would be open, be able to open up the scriptures for yourself and understand them, and be encouraged by them, convicted by them, challenged by them, and changed by them. So, let's do that together. First Corinthians, chapter ten, verse thirteen is the verse we're going to seek to understand this morning, for the sake of clarity. This is not going to be a normal sermon where I've got three points in a poem, and here's your takeaway, a practical thing. This is not. We're just, we're just going to study this verse. All right? Um, so don't look for five wedding tips, you know, five marriage tips. Uh, for the sake of clarity, I want to give you three questions, though, that we're going to try to answer this morning about this text. One, how do we understand the word temptation in the context? See that in a minute. How do we understand the word temptation? Uh, what does it mean that we won't be tempted beyond our ability? And three, how does God provide a way of escape from temptation? This is a, a text that many of us are, com- are, are, we know it, or we at least have derive some theological understanding from this if we even don't have it memorized. Uh, It is a promise of God that we cling to, um, but I think we cling to it too narrowly. I think it's actually greater than we typically understand. It's a greater promise of God than we typically, it's more wonderful and bigger than we typically understand it. So, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, follow along with me. No temptation has... Overtaken you gonna be important that is not common to man. Now, this is a really, really important phrase right here. God is faithful. No temptation is overtaking you, that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let will not let you be tempted. There's that word again. We're gonna zoom in on that. Tempted beyond your ability. We'll talk about that beyond your ability, what that means but with the temptation there's that word three times now that's important so you see a word three times in a verse it's probably going to be important temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it all right so how do we understand this word temptation this word temptation that we see three times written here in this verse, how do we understand the word temptation? When we normally think about the word temptation, we think of, of you know, the little devil on Bugs Bunny's shoulder saying, Bugs, do it you know, whatever it is, like like we think of him tempting, uh, the devil tempting us to to lust or to gossip or to steal or lie, and we think of temptation in that way, that the devil is tempting us to do some sin, right, and that, that is certainly a part of the context of this word, but what I want to show you is that given the context, that this word actually means a lot more, and I want to show you real quick uh, in verse 9, so we're going to zoom out a little bit, we're, we were in verse 13, we're going to go back a couple verses, so We want to understand the context. One thing you'll hear me say a lot is, context is king. Say that with me, context is. All right, you're still awake. That's good news. And so we want to know the context and understand the verse, okay? Now, the word here, so we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Now, you you wouldn't know this, but you could figure this out from the context, but the word temptation here in verse 13, all all three of them, and the word temptation. Test here in verse 9, which is where we get the context for temptation, is the same word in Greek. All right? And so the translators have chosen to interpret to translate one as test, one as temptation, but it's the same word. It's parazo, okay? Um, and so we gotta understand what is meant by temptation here for, to understand this verse. And so when we know that test is the same word, it's like, oh, huh, we need to think through that a little bit. Okay. So how do we understand this word temptation? we got to look at the context. Um, I, I recently saw a, a t-shirt, you know, a graphic t-shirt that had the best phrase ever on it. It said, I can do anything through a verse taken out of context. I thought that was really good. And so we don't want to do that. We don't want to take a verse out of context. We think context is king, and so we want to look at it and understand it. So, we're going to look at kind of the whole thing. This is, this is the whole context for our verse. This is verse 5 through 10 right before it. And so we're going to read this real quick and understand it. So, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. All right. So now we know our context is when the Israelites were in the wilderness. Who's most of them? Most of them is the Israelites in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. All right, and here is the context for when Paul says temptation in our verse or what he's referring to. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble. All right, so we've got one, two, three. Sexual morality put Christ to the test, or grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. That is the context for how we are going to understand our word. So we we don't commit sexual immorality. The reason the translators chose, in in our verse, to translate it as temptation and not as test is because of this word here, sexual immorality. Oh, okay, so it is a temptation, right? which is consistent with how we would normally understand the word. But we've got more going on. So we've got not putting Christ to the test. What does that mean? What does it mean to put Christ to the test? And what does it mean to grumble in the context? We've got to understand both of these things if we're going to understand the word temptation. So all three of them we've got to understand. So don't commit sexual immorality, don't put Christ to the test, test, and don't grumble. And so to understand what put Christ to the test and not grumble is, we need to go to where he's talking about here. And so what is that? That is in the wilderness. And so we go back and we look at uh, Exodus 17, all right? So if you have your Bibles, you want to flip back there. Exodus 17, we're going to look at verses 2 and 3. This is an example of when Israel was in the wilderness and they were being tested by the Lord and they are grumbling. But what are they grumbling about? Well, let's look. Therefore, the people quarreled, all right, with Moses and said, here it is, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you, oh, here's, here's a phrase, why do you test the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? That's exactly what happened in our context, why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted, they were thirsty because they wanted water. They were thirsty for water and the people, there's our word, grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt, to kill us? And our children and our livestock with thirst. There's that thirst, right? There it is. So they are thirsty. Israel is in the wilderness. They are struggling. They're in the desert. They, they don't have provision. They're worried. They're scared. Are we going to die? And it, it, you got, they're saying, God, you just brought us out here into the wilderness to die. It would have been better if you left us as slaves in Egypt rather than to be here and thirsty where we and our children are going to die. They are saying, if you are really God, this is how, they, this is how they're testing him. If you are really God... And if you really loved us, you would not have brought us here to die. You see, it is a manipulation, it is a test to say, if you really loved us, you wouldn't let us be thirsty. Hoping that it manipulates them for God to give them water to drink, to manipulate God. So that's how they're testing him. And then they are grumbling and testing about this lack of provision. Grumbling against God and testing God. Now let's look at another story where, where it's the same context—the children of Israel in the wilderness—but they grumble for another reason. This is in Joshua. This is—I'm sorry—this is Numbers thirteen, where Joshua has led some people to, to Jericho. Remember, and they see the they see the giants, and they're, they're, they're uh, Joshua's like, "Yeah, we can take them, right?" And see what's what happens. Uh, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, "Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. We can overcome the giants." Then the men who had gone up with them said, we are not able to go up against these people. All right, so you got one group saying, yes, we can do it. Joshua and Cable, yes, we can do it. Uh, And then everyone's like, no, we can't. They're big. They're scary. There's no way we're going to fight these guys and take them out. They are stronger than we are. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation of them said, here's the same phrase, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Wouldn't it have been better? God, why, wouldn't have been better that we just lived out our days as slaves in Egypt and died there where we at least did not have to fight giant scary people, right? <laughs> they are grumbling because they are afraid of this enemy. They are, so in the first one, they are thirsty and they don't think God's going to provide them. Now they are afraid that God is asking them to do too much. Obeying you, God, to obey to you and to go take out these giants in Jericho, is too much and it's too scary and it's too big and I can't do it. We won't make it. They think it's too much and so they grumble against the Lord and it would be rather better for us to die. So then when we understand that, when we go back to our verse, verse 13 and understand the context. What does the word temptation mean when we understand the context of what Paul has just talked about to get to the word Temptation. What includes a range of meaning. It includes sexual immorality, right? It includes putting Christ to the test and grumbling and understanding those things in the context of the Old Testament. You see, we got to understand all three of these things. To get at this word, no temptation, used three times. What does he mean? If we don't understand this word right here. Temptation right here. We're not going to understand the promises God has made to us in this verse. And if we don't understand the promise God has made to us in this verse, we will be lesser for it. So, what all is included in this word temptation? Well, immorality is included. Anger at God over the lack of provision and care is included. God, you should be giving me water. You should be giving me food. You should help me pay my grocery bill. How are you not making sure that my family is taken care of? God, how would you let, why would you let my family get sick? Why would you let them go to the hospital? Why would you let them get in that car crash? Why are you not providing for me? And it is doubting and wrestling and being angry at God over his lack of provision and care. And then three, that you might be disappointed with God for what trials he has allowed. It's the fear of, of danger. Anything that makes you disappointed with how God has acted. God, how is it that you could allow this bad thing to happen? How, or how is it you could ask me to do that? How is it you could ask me to uproot my family and move uh, over to Africa and go be missionaries? How could you do that? God, how could you ask me to, to, to downsize my home so that we might have more money to adopt a child for $40,000 from Russia? How is it you could ask me to do this? There's no way. It's too big of an ask, God. I can't do it. I'm too afraid of what might happen if I obey your command. And so we might be disappointed with God for what trials he's allowed, what things he's let happen in our life, the things he's asked us to do and the things that we struggle with. You see, here's what you have to understand. That word temptation... And the pro, this promise of verse 13 is not limited to what we normally think of as temptation, like, oh, God's tempted me to gossip or be gluttonous or something, but it includes all of the hardships of life, okay? So when he says, and let's go back real quick, verse 13, when he says, no temptation right here, you might understand that as no test, same word, no Test, no hardship in life, no struggle, no suffering, no trial, all right, that's all included in this word temptation, I'm going to take that as an amen, let's go, let me just make a side note, I love it when I hear babies in the service, (laughs) because that means we got babies, amen, yeah, let's go, don't you take that baby out, whoever that is, leave that baby right there, that's good, love it, all right, so. Temptation includes all of that. The word temptation in this promise of verse 13, not limited to what we normally think of temptation, but includes all the hardships of life. So, what is the nature of temptation? All temptations are tests of faith. All temptations are tests of our faith. Will you have faith in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this trial, in the midst of whatever is going on, will you have faith that God is good, that God is all satisfying, that God is right, right? Or will you give in to the temptation that says, sin is more satisfying than God? Sin is, more satisfying. Sin is easier, sin is more satisfying. I'd rather run away from God, curse God, like the Israelites in the wilderness, I'd curse him, do my own thing, rather than serve God and think he's good. All tests are temptation to not trust God. All temptations are saying something else is better than God. Okay? That is how we understand this word temptation in this context. So, you don't have water, you don't have food, if you get fired from your job, if you think you're going to die because you got cancer and you don't know what's going on, if you don't know who's going to make it, if your marriage is in shambles and it's a wreck and you don't know what to do and you are tempted to say, God, I don't trust you to navigate my life through my crumbling marriage. I don't trust you to navigate my life through my kids rebelling against me. I don't trust you to navigate my life through my cancer diagnosis. That's what temptation is to not trust God in the midst of suffering and trial. Or if some enemy's coming after you, right? Something that's threatening you, right? Cancer, some enemy, getting mugged in a back alley. You're tempted to run away from God. Someone, you, your wife got a car wreck and she's in the hospital with a brain bleed. And you're like, God, how could you let this happen? You're tempted to say, God, you are not good because you let this happen. That's the temptation. Right? That's the trial. That's the test. Do you think God is good and all right, and will get you through even despite this difficult trial? Let's say this another way. Temptation works in one of two ways. In either one, it draws you toward some sin and away from God. Oh, come have me. Oh, this is good. Oh, come and, and sleep with this woman who's not your wife. Oh, come and Take that thing off the shelf. No one will notice it's gone. No one will notice you put it in your pocket. Oh, no one will care that you didn't file all your cryptocurrency on your taxes. What is a Bitcoin anyway? Nobody knows. Government ain't going to care. It's a temptation away away from God and towards sin. Or the other way temptation works is it pushes you away from obedience to fear and pain. God, I cannot do what you're asking me to do. We cannot take those giants I cannot sell my house. I cannot do this. Or that. I cannot uh, repair this marriage. I can't do the thing you're asking me to do. It's too hard and it's too scary. So how we understand temptation, those two ways. So when you go back to verse 13, and we want to understand this promise that's being made. when We know that temptation is talking about not just, you know, to, to lust or gossip or something, that it is a promise about every trial, right, this verse. Is a promise about every trial we walk through. From lustful temptation, to being too afraid to obey God and what he's called you to do, to being scared that God won't provide for you. And so when you face cancer, when you face hardship, when you face a crumbling marriage, when you face job loss, when you lose a loved one, when tragedy strikes, this verse is a promise that applies to you if you're in Christ. God's faithfulness here, right, his, his faithfulness, right here, we've got, we got to circle that, that's a big word, God's faithfulness applies to you, applies here, not just to temptations as we normally think about it, but in all the tests of life, right, think about this as, don't judge my handwriting, guys, test, it's worse because it's a, not a real pencil, it's normally bad, it's a test, no test, no, no suffering, right? It's overtaking you because God is faithful. So this applies to all of life. So, all right, let's move on. Now that we understand, take, oh my gosh, look at that. A little bit. Now that we understand what no temptation means, that's all of life, let's look at what it means, no temptation has overtaken you. No temptation has overtaken you. Notice, and I want you to let this sink in for a moment, what he doesn't say. You know, when you're studying this verse and you meditate on this, you might might think, oh, he chose this word. Why did he choose this word? He didn't say, no temptation, no test has come to you. He could have said, no test has happened to you. He could have said, no test has been experienced by you. But he doesn't say that. He says, no temptation has taken you. No temptation has its claws in you. No temptation has snatched you up in its grip. Because sometimes we feel like when we commit a sin, it's not that, oh, yeah, you know, this this temptation just happened to me, right? When temptation gets us, it gets its claws in us. It Overtakes us, it feels like sometimes. It makes us doubt God's goodness and His faithfulness. It makes us doubt whether or not we should ever want to follow God, if it's worth it to follow God. It gets its clutches in us, and we, we, we go into addiction and we spiral out of control, right? It overtakes us sometimes, and that's why we're going to need an escape from it. Because it might overtake us. But it feels like the sin, so has you caught. In its clutches. And we feel like we might never be free. We're gonna need a way of escape. But first, let's let's keep let's keep looking at right, right. So we're not gonna overtake you, right? But what does he say next? No temptation, no test, no trial, no suffering has overtaken you. That is not common to man. It's not common to man. Alright, what does he mean by that? This is one Greek one word in Greek. All right. It's all of this is one word anthropos. Y'all can probably guess what that means. It means man. It means human, right? Uh, What he's not saying is that we're only tempted by humans. That's not not his point. Because obviously we we don't wrestle just against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities of darkness, right? Those things tempt us too. But what he is saying is that we are only tempted or tested or go through the types of trials that are particularly human trials, right? Particularly human kinds of trials. We're not going through something abnormal to humanity. Right? We are, uh, we're, not, we're not going through something that's abnormal until he's fallen humanity. What you are going through may be hard, uh, but you can endure and escape, as we're going to see in a minute, because it is a human thing, not a superhuman affliction. All right? It is not that the devil has so used his magical powers on you that you are at a place where you cannot escape it. Because the things you're going through are particularly human trials, and God is faithful and you can escape through them. You don't have to be stuck in it forever. You can have victory through it. All right? Does that make sense? Y'all could amen that, all right? Or I'm going to have to talk to the choir behind me because they'll talk to me, maybe. Y'all talk. Let's go. God is faithful, all right? So no temptation, no temptation is overtaking you. That's not common to man, all right? But God is faithful, and God is faithful. <laughs> How is he faithful? Look at this. Oh, i got to get a new color. Let's go purple. He will not let you. He will not let. What a a one, I mean, these are three little words. He will not let. Four words. What a wonderful display of the sovereignty of God that God won't let something happen. He won't let something happen. Now, we got to understand what he's not letting because this is where we go wrong a lot of times. This is a verse out of context. I can do anything through a verse taken out of context. This is where this is going to come in, all right? So sometimes, when, you know, what is he not going to let happen for you to be, let me clean this up. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, you have probably heard someone say, and maybe you have said before, and we need to clean up our thinking a little bit. You've heard someone say, "You know what? God won't give you more than you can handle." That's where people people get this that idea from this verse. God won't give you more than you can handle. That junk ain't in the Bible, y'all. That ain't. That's not what this says. It doesn't say God isn't going to give you more than you can handle. Because then all I got to do is like be really weak and be like, "God, I can't handle anything. Don't be giving me nothing." All right? That's not what he's saying. He's not. That's not what's happening here. I want to be clear. This promise is not, no temptation has overcome you because God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not the promise. The promise is, no temptation has overtaken you because God is faithful. Now, how do we understand what does he mean by tempted beyond your ability? Now, we got to look at context. How does, Paul, how does Paul talk about this kind of thing, right? And so we, we looked at the immediate context here, but we also want to look at Paul's other letters and, and all the New Testament understand these words and these ideas. And so uh, I compiled like 15 or 20 verses where Paul talked about this, but for the sake of time, we'll, we'll look at two. All right, so Philippians 2, 12 through 13. This is also Paul. Notice how he talks about God working in us. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, right, you're obeying, so now not only is it my presence, but so much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is what he's asked him to do, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who works in you. It's not your strength. It's not you who are so strong or so weak, and the level of suffering and temptation or trial you get is based on your ability God is not going to give you more than you can handle. No, 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 because God is working in you. All right, let's look at another one. Here's a a good one we take out of context. I know how to be brought low and how to, to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things. I can do it. I can do all things. Through him who strengthens me. I can't do all things. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's not on my own. This language is all over the New Testament. It is God by the Holy Spirit who is indwelling us, working in us, working through us for his good pleasure. We do not do things in our own strength. We do them by the strength God puts in us, okay? So when we go back to our verse, it is not, when we look at, where to go? He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. It's not that God won't give you more than you can handle. The promise is God is faithful. Right here, God is faithful, and he will not allow temptation. He's not going to allow trial and suffering and testing. Beyond the grace he gives you through it. Not going to allow testing, temptation greater than he is going to give you the grace and the strength, quote-unquote ability, his ability in you to endure it. So it's not as if I'm really weak and really helpless, then God won't give me as much, as many trials. No, God is saying, I will be with you in the trial. He's saying, whatever you go through, there is no test, no temptation. I will not give you the grace to supply the strength for you to get through it, to endure it. My grace is sufficient. It will sustain you. You may fail, but I won't let you be overcome. I won't let you fall away. I am faithful. No temptation overtakes God's children because God is faithful, not because you are so strong-willed. No temptation overtakes. But no testing, no trial, no whatever, right? Overtakes the God's children because God is faithful. Give you the strength to endure. Not because you are so strong-willed. But also, notice these great words of promise. right? will not let you, not let any temptation, any test come to you that he doesn't allow. Right? If God is in control... God is not looking down at you saying, oh, man, you know what, they're going through this really hard thing. And they weren't, Gabriel, they weren't quite ready for that. Gosh, why do we let that happen? That's not what he's doing, right? He, he, he's not like, man, Gabriel, go help out a little bit. because they, they weren't quite ready for that. God doesn't drive an ambulance. He doesn't respond to crisis in your life. He doesn't go, oh, man, didn't see that car crash coming. Didn't see that cancer diagnosis coming. I better go help out. He doesn't respond to the trials and tests in our life. No, he allows them. He lets them happen. And he chooses which one he lets. He chooses which ones come to you. Remember when Job was tested in the book of Job? What happens before he's tested? The, the, the devil comes to God and the devil has to ask permission. He's got to ask permission. God, is it okay? Can I do this to Job? And God has to allow him to do it, Right? He has to allow the hardship, allow the suffering. And if God is allowing the hardship and the suffering, he's also giving you the grace that you need to get through it because those trials are for a purpose. They're not arbitrary, they're not random. God is using those trials for a purpose in your life to produce something in you, some goodness. He's working it for good in some way. In the midst of that trial, in the midst of that test and temptation, God is faithful. We're not always faithful. We fail a lot. God is faithful. God is faithful. We see God's faithfulness even more as we continue, not just in that he works in us the ability to walk through this and not run away, not curse God and run away and say, God, you should have just left me at home, left me in Egypt. But in the midst of trial and hardship, he provides the way of escape. All right, so let's look at this together. He says, No temptation beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What are you enduring? You are enduring this trial, this test, this temptation, this suffering. Sometimes we read too fast or we don't take care to comprehend what the words are saying here. And we read this and it's easy to jump to this conclusion that God is going to get me out of the testing. That when we understand Endure right here, this right here, this endure it, this escape. That what that means is an escape out of the trial that God has allowed in our life. That He's allowed this bad thing to happen, this difficult thing to happen, but now He's going to give us an escape to get out of it. But that's not what the words mean when you read them. That's what happens when we read too fast. God is going to not going to get me out of the test and get me out of the temptation, but what does this mean? He's going to enable me to endure it. Endure doesn't mean get out. Endure means to go through without being overtaken, without succumbing, without being like the children of Israel in the wilderness. Saying, God, we just want to curse you and die because it was better for us to be over there in Egypt. He will provide escape that you may be able to endure the suffering. There's another reason that if we just understood temptation, when we we try to understand this word temptation to mean the devil goading us into lust or something like that, that the rest of this promise wouldn't make sense. Because I don't want to endure, I don't want to endure temptation. But I do want to endure test, I do want to endure trial. I do want to endure suffering, not temptation. But if what is in view here is a trial test, a cancer, losing a spouse, or crumbling marriage, then how do we walk through that? How do we walk through those seasons without saying, God, how could you do this to me? God, how could you allow this to happen to me? God, how, how could you ask me to do that? How could you ask me to go back to this woman who's done this to me? How could you ask me to go back to this man who's done this to me? How could you ask me to sell my home? How could you, Whatever, how could you ask me to do that? Or how could you allow this to happen? Wouldn't you understand it that way? This verse makes all the sense in the world. Because no trial, no hardship in life will ever overtake you. Because God will enable you to endure it. Right, not because your ability, because God giving you the ability to endure it. It won't be too much for you, because God is strong in you, and His grace is sufficient to get you through, no matter how dark the tunnel. There are two places where this word "endure" is in the New Testament. Only two other places, and I want to look at those with you real quick. First Peter two nineteen. For this is a gracious thing. When when mindful of God. One endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. What is a gracious thing that when we when we are mindful of God in the midst, uh, while we're mindful of God, while we in, endure endure sorrows and suffering unjustly, mindful of God, that's a gracious thing. The grace of God enables us to keep our thoughts. And our minds on God, that while we endure our suffering, we say, God, you're good. I know this is tough right now. I know I'm crumbling. Everything's crumbling around me, but you're good. I'm going to keep my mind on him. That's a good and gracious thing. That's God strength in us to say he's good in the midst of sorrows. If you are able to experience sorrows and suffering while looking to God and trusting God instead of cursing him, it means that you have escaped the design of the devil in your sorrow, that you've conquered the evil one and have escaped you see, the escape right here, this escape is related to the temptation to sinning in the midst of that suffering, to failing the temptation, failing the trial. It's not escaping the suffering, but escaping the test, the temptation to curse God while you're suffering. God, I mean, the number one reason people walk away from God. It's because of the problem of evil, because of suffering, because of pain and trials and tragedy. I can't believe in a God who would let my mom die in a car crash. I can't believe in a God who would allow my wife to get cancer and die. I can't believe in a God who would allow little babies to die in in the womb. I can't believe in a God who would allow this or that. That's the reason people walk away. And so if you are able to endure the the escape, if you're able to escape, that is that you are enduring the trial, you are going through the temptation, you are going through the test, and the escape is, God, you're good, faithful, trust you. This is really hard and I'm broken right now, but I'm not looking other directions, I'm not looking to things of the world, I'm not looking to other escapes, I'm looking to you because you are the strength of my heart, you are my portion, you will get me through this. Nothing else will. So in the midst of this, I'm going to cling to you and hold on to you, you're my anchor. That's the escape. The escape is to trust God so you can endure through it, through the suffering. God is faithful. So he gives. God is faithful. And so he gives. It's a way of escape that we might endure through it. we at got one more verse with me. 2 Timothy 4:16. 16. Now, at my, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Paul endured the lion's mouth right here. Look, the lion's mouth. He's, God rescued Paul from the lion's mouth. This could be either to say he was thrown in the Colosseum and like, you know, Book of Daniel style, the God shut the lion's mouths and they didn't eat him. Or this could be like the devil uh, roaring, you know, uh, uh, roaming, prowling like a lion, seeking whom they may devour to hurt him. But, you know, whichever one of those it may be. But God, Paul's going through something, but God rescued him from the lion's mouth. That was trying to devour him. Whatever was trying to hurt him, God rescued him. It's like God was not done with Paul. I got, I got stuff, more stuff for you to do. And so I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to stop the suffering. I'm going to take you out of it. Right? Sometimes that happens. Sometimes God brings us out of the suffering. But notice the end. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Sometimes the rescue isn't healing. It's not a fix yet is to bring you safely home to the kingdom of God. Sometimes that's, that's God's faithfulness. Sometimes bring you on home so that you might end the suffering that we walk through in this life. Sometimes God says, I'm going to heal you, but it's going to be at the resurrection at the last day when I bring your body back and your hips don't hurt anymore. I'm going to rescue you, but it's going to be after the lion eats you and I'm going to put you back together and raise you from the dead sometimes sometimes the rescue isn't immediate but God is still faithful in that he does it i've been a lot, i've been by a lot of deathbeds my time as being in ministry and and there are really two kinds of rooms you walk into one room someone who's dying and people friends and family are gathered around and the the air is Almost so thick you could choke on it. And there's eerie quietness and only sorrow and hopelessness and there's no words to say from anybody. No one knows what to say because it's hopeless because it's clear this person is not a Christian and there's no hope and death is the end for them or at least they think it's the end for them and the room just feels evil. It just feels horrible. Then you go into another room. Beside a dying saint um, who his head is bald with the loss of hair from radiation, chemo treatments, whatever, and they are withering away, but yet you look at them and their friends and family around, and the air is light, and there's peace in the room, and there's hope, and there's there's, there's so many words to say and so many memories to share and, and there's little weeping and the weeping is out of selfishness because we're just going to miss them but but there's great hope. And and we're able to, I've seen people look at those and say, mom, just let go. Mom, stop fighting. I'm going to miss you but go be with Jesus. And and mom says, honey, I want to let go. Honey, I want to stop fighting. Honey, I want to go see my Lord. I'm ready. And there's a lightness to the air. It's a completely different experience. We're, we're not praying at that point for healing, but we are praying for rescue. We are praying for endurance and escape and rescue that in heaven and in a resurrection, and there's great hope, right? And so sometimes the Lord's escape is not removal of suffering. Oh, but sometimes it's not removal of suffering. Sometimes he wants you to endure it for a long time, Sometimes it's because your head's too thick and your skull's too thick and he's been trying to teach you something and you're not learning it and so he's just gonna keep sending stuff. So maybe now you know learn a little bit. And sometimes it's just he wants you to go through because he's doing something and sometimes he ends it. Sometimes you, he stops it and other times other times it's the end but it's still rescue. It's still rescue. Escape is not the removal of suffering but the ability to endure through it and not curse and forsake God. To endure through suffering and not say, screw you, God. I'm done with you. Gives you the ability, the escape is that you don't do that. You say, God, you're good in the midst of my whole world. that's breaking. I don't curse him, but I love him and hold on to him in the midst of it. Escape is not the removal of suffering, but the ability to endure through it and not forsake God. No matter what pain, what suffering, what death, what heartache, what tragedy befalls us, the grace of God. The faithfulness of God to give us the grace to keep going, to endure, to overcome, unlike the Israelites in the wilderness. That we might, in the midst of suffering, not run away from Jesus, but run toward Jesus. When your marriage is in shambles, you don't run away from Jesus, you run toward Jesus. When you get that phone call that you're, you're de- devastated, you don't run away from Jesus, you run toward Jesus. I don't want to push you away now, I need you close. That I can endure this horrible thing. Jesus is good, He's kind to give us grace upon grace. All right, let's look at the whole thing and understand it. There's, there's no temptation, there's no trial, there's no test, there's no suffering. That has overtaken you. That isn't, that isn't just just what people go through. What is common to us. But man, God, God is faithful. He is so faithful. And he will not allow you. He will not let. He is sovereign. He will not let. He will not allow. He was in control. He will not let you be tempted beyond his grace to give you the ability to go through it. To give you the strength and the ability to go through it. He will give that to you. With this temptation. He's going to provide the way of escape. The way of escape is that you don't succumb to be overtaken and curse God and run away. But instead you may be able to endure. The temptation, the trial, the suffering, and endure it. This passage is a glorious promise of God's faithfulness to us that while we are tempted and while we sometimes fall, while we sometimes sin, while we sometimes doubt, that no matter what suffering, no matter what hardship that we go through, we will not give, he will not give us more brokenness, and he also gives us the grace to endure the brokenness. So if you're here this morning and you feel tired, you feel exhausted. You have been hit with wave after wave after wave of trial, and it seems like it'll never end. You feel like the test and the and the suffering and the hardships never end. And it's just always more bad news in your life. Hold on to Jesus. Hold on, not in your own strength, but in the faithfulness of God. Who doesn't drive an ambulance, who doesn't go, oh, I didn't know that was happening to you. Let me come help out. But the God who allowed it to happen, because he allowed it because he was giving you the strength and the ability to endure it. Hold on to him. That, is, he, that he gives you this grace to endure. The grace, His grace is sufficient that you won't turn your back on him. You won't curse him and turn your back on him like the Israelites in the wilderness. When they tested the Lord. He'll give you the strength on the worst of your days to say, even though everything's falling apart around me, God is good. He is enough. He will satisfy. He'll get me through. I will cling to him in the storm. He's the strength of my heart. And though I may fail, he will never fail me. He's faithful. Faithful. And we see his faithfulness displayed most especially on the cross. when he gives his life for sinners like us. So that no matter what we face, he could always bring us home. You see, Jesus faced the cross because he was betrayed. And on the night he was betrayed, he broke bread. And when he broke the bread, he said, take, eat to his disciples. This is my body broken for you. And he told them to drink from this cup. wine. this picture of his blood that was going to be poured out for the new covenant. And we, he told us to take this meal. Until he returns to continue to take it, remembering he's faithful. He's faithful that he was broken. That he doesn't just allow you to endure suffering, that he endured suffering too. Entered your shoes and walked through it. He endured suffering that he might end it once and for all. He is faithful. And so we remember him broken on the cross. We remember him bruised and bleeding, succumbed to the curse of sin because he's faithful and he wanted to come and end it. He's faithful even when we're not faithful. And so as we sing in a moment, deacons are going to come up and they're going to pass the elements of the Lord's Supper to you. And let me be clear, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is not a meal for you to take. If you are a kid in this room and you have not trusted in Jesus, this is not a meal for you. If you are here and you're curious, you got questions, you believe in God maybe, but you're not a follower of Jesus, he's not your king, this is not a meal for you, don't take it. Instead, come take hold of Christ. I'm going to stand up here as we sing. I'm going to go all the way over there come and say, Brent, I want to take hold of Christ. That I might suffer but have endurance through it. But if you are his... Take these elements this morning. We're going to take them all together. So they're going to pass out. Hold on to them. We'll take them all together. And remember, you're not alone in the trials of life. He suffered with you, for you. That you never have to walk alone. So that he could always provide you in a way of escape. That you might not run from God, but run toward him and endure through the hard things in this world. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And we're thankful you gave us your word. You gave us a book full of words that you spoke that were important for us to hear and us to know and us to digest and us to receive and promises to hold on to, promises to cling to, promises that no temptation could ever overtake us in such a way that we would run away from you but because you are faithful to hold on to us. God, help us to cling to these promises. And if you're here this morning, And you don't know him, God, I pray you give him the strength this morning for those who are far from you to come and cling and behold a crucified and risen Christ. God, we need you this morning. We need you to speak and work in our hearts and in our lives. God, as we sing, as we take this meal, let us remember we're never alone. We're never alone. But we. We have an anchor, someone who suffered with and for us, that we may always endure no matter what we face. You're here this morning, and you say to me, Brent, my marriage is a sham, it is in shambles, it is broken, and I don't think it can be repaired. Do not succumb and be overtaken by the th- trial, by the test, because God will. He's faithful and he will provide a way of escape that you might endure the trial. If you're here this morning and you've gotten a phone call, if you've been to the doctor and you've got bad news, don't curse God. Don't run away from him because he is faithful. He won't give you more than he gives you the grace to endure. He's faithful and even if it kills you, he is good. and He will give you the grace that you might not run from him but able to endure the the, the trial. you're here this morning, and you are in a cycle of, cycle of depression or addiction or anxiety, a, a cycle of, of worry and fear, a cycle of hardship, and you, you don't know how to get out of it, look to Jesus, run to Jesus, because he'll give you the strength to endure, and he might not remove it for a while. Don't look for it to be ended. Look for the anchor that will hold you steadfast through the trial that you might come out on the other side one day in this life or the next and say, God is good. He's faithful. And he won't ever give me more than he gives me the strength to endure. He's faithful. God, I pray for those people in this room right now that are struggling. I pray you give them the grace to endure and that you would help them to not run from you but run towards you. Run towards you and keep fighting with your strength. They may endure to the end. In Christ's name we pray all people said, amen. Let's sing together. Remain seated.